Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 67 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I am pleased to welcome Benjamin Greenhagen, a planetary scientist at Johns Hopkins University's Applied Physics Lab in Maryland. Greenhagen is currently the Deputy Principal Investigator of the Diviner Lunar Radiometer Instrument on board NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. He's also a co-investigator on a new small NASA satellite mission dubbed Lunar Flashlight, currently in development. He received his Ph.D. in planetology from UCLA in 2009, but today specializes in the analysis of planetary surfaces and is an expert on our own moon's lunar surface. Greenhagen joins us from his office in Laurel, Maryland. Ben, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Uh, Hello, thanks for having me. First off, how would you define the lunar surface? What's the depth at which you would say, this is no longer the surface, but the subsurface? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I I think it kind of depends on perspective. So I'm a scientist that uses optical sensing techniques. So light reflecting off of things or heat energy light that's coming from surfaces. So I would define the surface as the portion of the, of, uh, that is reflecting that light or emitting the heat. And that kind of, you know, another way of looking at that is, is the part that when Buzz Aldrin looked at the surface and referred to as magnificent desolation, that's lunar surface to me. But there are a, a lot of people that would make definitions that are a little bit different than that. So I'll be generous and, and offer up the top meter of regolith as being the surface. The top meter. So that's about three feet from the top of the surface uh, where the boot prints are still there down to about three feet below the surface. Is that, And is that pretty much what you would define Earth's surface as well? I mean, when once you get below, we're still talking topsoil at three feet below it, the Earth's surface, is that right? Yeah, and I think that would depend on the area that you're in. But on the moon, most of the information we have is from remote sensing. And so the techniques we use, uh, there aren't very many that can, that provide information that's deeper than about a meter. So almost everything we know, know about the composition and the texture and all that is really coming from that top meter, that top three feet of the surface. So there was concern early on in the Apollo program that the lunar regolith uh, or the top surface layer, and let's define a regolith uh, for the listener. How would you define a regolith? Yeah, so regolith is broken up uh, pieces of, of rock and glass. It's it, it, Depending on, on uh, if you're at the very top surface, it has more glass. If you go deeper, it has a little bit less glass. But it's really just crushed up uh, geologic materials uh, that have formed uh, through breaking down of rocks by impacts over billions and billions of years. But unlike the Earth, it's not soiled. Uh, so can you di- differentiate between what we term soil here on Earth and regolith? Right. So soil is a term that actually has been, and it continues to be used some in lunar context because people think of dirt, soil. Um, but because soil has a biological connotation to it, most people refer to the materials on the surface of the moon as, as regolith these days. But they, they, are, they are one and the same. There was concern early on that the regolith, the lunar surface might be so deep and loose that a lander might just disappear into the surface as if it were quicksand. Does the density and depth of the lunar regolith vary over the surface? Yeah, so there's two aspects to that. So there's the density and the depth. So in terms of depth, 
the regolith is deeper in the highland regions, which are the lighter toned regions when you look at the moon, and it's thinner in the um, the darker regions, the Mari basalts. So in the highlands, the regolith might be up to 30 meters or so thick. It can vary uh, by tens of meters, even on top of that. Whereas in the Mari regions, it can be less than 10 meters thick. So that's this, you know, loose, crushed up uh, rock. Of course, there are areas where a more coherent materials uh, exist on the surface. Well, the regolith is, is densest where there's coherent material. So rocks uh, that have been ejected from impact craters very near the crater tend to have a denser regolith around them. And also impact melt, which is uh, surface materials that have been fused together and melted during the impact process, tend to form a denser regolith initially that then breaks down over time. On the other end of the, of the scale, some of the, the less dense regolith comes from pyroclastic deposits. So these are volatile-rich fire fountain-style eruptions that happen on the moon, uh, and they tend to have a, a less dense or under-dense regolith. Can you differentiate between the highlands and the Maori for the listeners? Yeah, so they have different formation mechanisms. So let's start with the highlands first. So, so that's the primary crust that uh, came from the formation of the moon. So when the originally the interior of the moon was more or less liquid, molten, and over time it separated into different mineral classes. Plagioclase, which makes up the highland part of the crust, is, um, is one of the lighter elements. And so that dominates the, top, the part that floated to the top. Um, the uh, and so that hasn't been modified basically since it originally formed. The Mari basalts, on the other hand, are materials that have been erupted onto the surface on top of uh, in places on top of that uh, plagioclase crust, and they are sourced from the mantle, so so deep inside the moon, um, and their composition is very different. Instead of being made of plagioclase, they're mostly made of pyroxene and olivine. And what is plagioclase? How would you define that? So plagioclase is a rock-forming mineral. It's actually the most common mineral on Earth. Um, it's uh, on de- its composition can depend on if you're in the crust uh, or if you're in the mantle. But it's uh, it's it's a really com- it's a uh, calcium aluminum silicate. Um, on the moon, it's the type is actually interesting. It's a very un- the type of plagioclase that's on the moon is called anorthite, and it's a really uncommon version of plagioclase on Earth. In fact, one of the very few places that you can go and get a very similar to, to the lunar-like composition of plagioclase uh, are these little islands off of the, Jap- off of the Japanese um, island, main island, uh, in the Pacific Ocean. So it's, uh, it's a very unusual material. Um, whereas the, the basaltic plains, on the other hand, are, are sim- they're not exactly the same as the composition as what you'd see in Hawaii, but they're, they're very similar. They just have different amounts of water in them. But the general agreed-upon theory for the formation of the moon is that the early Earth was hit by a Mars-sized impactor, which uh, scientists have dubbed Theia. The debris from the, that impact uh, coalesced in Earth orbit and formed the moon. And the, the moon is basically formed from lighter materials, lighter silicates, and uh, the Earth maintained most of the iron and most of the heavier, heavier elements. Yeah, so the giant impact theory is actually held up pretty well. I mean, it, it is a, a model base, so there have been tweaks over the years. And the most recent version usually involves uh, the Earth spinning faster, so nearing the point at which uh, material would be flung off the Earth, but not quite there, and then a, a more grazing impact from, from the Theia uh, proto uh, impactor. Let's step back and talk about the big picture 
of the lunar surface. After decades of studying the lunar surface, and I don't mean just by mapping it, because Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has done a great job of that, but I mean actually studying and modeling what we know about the lunar surface. How well do we actually understand it? Well, I would say we think we know it pretty well, but we also know that we're discovering new things all the time that really make us question how well we know it. And uh, I think you know, an example of this would be we had an early discovery uh, with the Diviner Lunar Radiometer, an investigation that was led by uh, co-investigator Josh Banfield. And he found that fresh impact craters had these huge halos of regolith around them that appeared to be cold when you looked at them at night, like 50 times larger than the size of the crater. And so they were termed cold spots. And this was a new phenomenon that we've never seen before, not only on the moon, but any phenomenon because we hadn't flown that type of instrument. So it's, it's kind of this paradigm that every time you use a new measurement technique or an instrument that provides, you know, a significantly higher spatial resolution, you make discoveries that allow you to ask better questions. So I feel like every time we answer a question, we end up asking two more questions. So active uh, volcanism on the lunar surface spanned an epoch from some 3.9 billion years ago to perhaps as late as a billion years ago. So the whole near side is covered with dark volcanic plains, and the far side is almost entirely devoid of them. Or am I wrong about that? I I would say you're 90% right. (laughs) So uh, the near side does have large areas of the basaltic plains. It's it's about half coverage on the near side. Uh-huh. And the far side is uh, has has fewer, but it actually does have basaltic plains and they're in some of the most interesting places on the far side. So you find some of it in the South Pole Aiken Basin, which is one, the largest and deepest and oldest impact basin on the moon, one of the oldest in the solar system. Um, you also see them in the Moscovyense Basin, which is has the thinnest crust on the moon. You basically have mantle uh, intersecting directly with the surface in that area. And uh, the Tsiolkovsky uh, crater as well also has, has more basalt so, uh, yeah, and, and dozens of others. But yeah, overall, it, in terms of, of, of the amount of coverage, it's much, much smaller on the far side than on the near side. What do you think the reason for that is? Yeah, so there's a number of theories out there about why that could be. Most of them involve what was happening inside the moon uh, late in its internal evolution. So after the crust had formed, after most of the mantle had solidified, there was this leftover material that had all of the junk that wouldn't go into rocks. So this is called creep on the moon, potassium, rare earth elements, and um, phosphorus. So that material has a lot of uh, radiogenic elements in it, and so it allows it to retain, retain heat easier. So one of the ideas is that that material due to orbital and interior structure types of arguments, how, how the moon is oriented currently, was defined by this blob of material, which was located predominantly on the near side as opposed to the far side. And because it had this heat-generating material in it, it was able to more, to more readily produce the basaltic eruptions. But it also seems that, uh, and I'm not, just, I'm not the first person to, <laughs> to, uh, to propose this, but it also seems there are major differences between the surfaces of the near side and the far side. The far side seems to be more cratered uh, than the near side and also have a thicker crust. The far side does appear to be more cratered because the surface is on average older. Because it's that primary highlands crust, that original crust, it's been on the surface for you know, 4.42 or 4.5 billion years. Whereas the Mari basalts on the near side do have this range of ages. And so since most of that, those large impacts uh, happened 
and, and kind of stopped happening, you know, more than three billion years ago, the far side with this highlands dominated surface just received more craters than the near side, which has these basalts, which weren't there for that entire bombardment period. And again, uh, there's really no agreement on why the, the near side had more volcanic activity later than the far side. Yeah, that's definitely an area of scientific investigation. And one of the highest priorities that we have is to get samples of some of the basalts on the far side and compare them to some of the basalts that we've returned uh, from Apollo. So uh, you mentioned uh, in the pre-interview that uh, paleontologists would likely be very interested to find evidence for impact debris for an Earth impactor dating back some 3 billion years. That's because it's very difficult to find that kind of evidence uh, for impactors here on Earth due to weatherings. Yeah, I mean, the general idea there is just that there's a lot of details missing from how life originated on Earth. There's a lot of uncertainty. In, in published articles, you'll find estimates for life forming uh, as old as 4.5 billion years, like basically as soon as the Earth formed to maybe as late as 3.5 billion years. And so having materials of that age on the moon might have some of those biomarkers that could help really key that that in and, and see how life originated. And even if you um, don't find rocks that are that old, even finding younger uh, rocks they might include things like fossils or other biomarkers that could be important to see how life evolved over time as well, because there's there's plenty of, of gaps in the fossil record as well. So it, it's just another way of getting uh, information on the history of Earth that is difficult to do, because most of Earth's surface is actually very young. It's you know, dominated by oceans that are generally hundreds of million years old, not billions of years old. So the Planetary Society reported last week that NASA and the Japanese space agency, JAXA, have selected a new low-cost sample collection technology for a 2023 mission to the Mare Crisium, the Sea of Crises, on the moon's northeast nearside corner. And the only other mission to the Mare Crisium was the Soviet Union's Luna 24 spacecraft, which returned samples from the region's southern area in uh, 1976. So what would this uh, upcoming mission mean for lunar science? Yeah, so this is one of the missions that uh, NASA has selected through the, uh, and is flying through a eclipse provider, a commercial lunar payload services provider. So NASA's working with commercial companies to land payloads on the moon. NASA's paying for the payloads. And in this case, it's uh, the instrument you're talking about is PlanetBack, which is developed by the company Honeybee. And it's really a demonstration of a technology that could be really instrumental for sample collection, not just on the moon, but also on other airless bodies. And it's uh, called so the JAXA you... component of that is flying that mission to Phobos. One, 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 one of Mars. Mars is bit... Okay. Now, what is PlanetVac? So PlanetVac is uh, it's really innovative design. Basically, they land. Um, it's often oftentimes implemented on the leg of the lander, and basically, it's a pneumatic system. So they have a little dome over the surface and they puff air into that or nitrogen or whatever gas they're using. And that uh, sends particles flying down the system into a receptacle where they can collect it. And as part of that, they also um, select the size of samples they want. So bigger samples get rejected, smaller samples get blown out. And so they can really effectively use this as a way of um, collecting um, regolith of a certain size that's interested for science inquiry. And so what would you hope to learn from this uh, mission? 
Well, from this mission in, in Planovac is really a technology demonstration. And it, it could, because it is this low-cost solution, it, it could be a way in which you could do many more sample return missions from the moon and, and from other airless bodies. So I think that's really exciting. Generally speaking, the mission, that mission to Chrysium, it's, it's an interesting scientific target. Um, it has very thin crust. It also has potential exposures of mantle-like materials around uh, the basin. It has unusually high concentrations of olivine. Um, so it, it's an area where you can study not just volcanism, but also some interior uh, lunar processes as well. What would it mean if you were able to actually bring some olivine back to Earth? Well, if we were able to bring it back to Earth, we would be able to study the chemical composition, and that would give us information about the lunar interior. Um, olivine is is a silicate that and one end member uh, is rich in magnesium, and the other end member is rich in iron. So understanding uh, what that composition is allows us to compare it to models of, of the interior uh, differentiation of the moon. What about the impact and the timing of, of the impact that caused the Tycho crater at the bot- bottom center right of the moon's nearside southern hemisphere? Tycho, it's an 85-kilometer diameter crater. It's 108 million years old. It's a starkly bright feature because of its relatively young age. I know 108 million years sounds, sounds old, but in terms of things on the lunar surface, they get, they're pretty well preserved uh, at that age. The crater itself, if you ever find time to go check out some of the images that the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter camera has taken of it, they're absolutely breathtaking. There's things that you would assume are lava flows down the sides of the the crater rim, but they're actually impact melt flows. The central peak of it has a gigantic rock. I know we were talking about rocks earlier, but it has a rock that's about 200 meters across, and it's just laying right at the top of this mountain at the middle of the crater. They call it the Dragon's Egg. Um, so yeah, it, it's a very interesting feature, um, and because it's it's so young, it, it, it it's it's easier to study than some of the other features. And one of the really interesting things that we've done with Diviner, uh, the instrument that I mostly work on, is we looked at the antipode of Tycho. So the antipode is the opposite side of the moon. On Earth, this would be uh, if you're the antipode of the United States, it would be the Southern Indian Ocean. Um, but these impacts on the moon. Because the, the way the materials are ejected out, they tend to concentrate on the opposite side of the moon. And Tycho's antipode is the only place where we see an abundance of rocks at a place where we wouldn't otherwise expect to see rocks. So it's, uh, there's no impact crater over there. There's just these blocks that have been rained down. There's also impact melt um, deposits. So th- this material from the near side has been deposited on the far side by that impact. And this likely has happened all over on the moon. It's just because that is the most recent crater, 85-kilometer crater, it's easiest to see with that example. Good gosh. I know that Lunar uh, Reconnaissance Orbiter is still operational, is it not? Yes, it is definitely 100% operational. In fact, right now we're working on uh, a proposal to NASA to get an additional uh, three years of operations from uh, September 2022 through September 2025. So we have definitely have the expectations of being able to continue. And it's mapped about 75% of the lunar surface? Well, so that, that number depends on which instrument you're talking about. So, for instance, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter camera is actually several cameras. And one of the cameras is a wide-angle camera that every single month maps 100% of the lunar surface. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Diviner, a lunar radiometer instrument, we've measured about 90% of the surface at more than one time of day. 
Um, so depending on what type of study you're doing at, and what local times you want to look at the surface, um, there's there's pretty good density or there there might not be, just depending on what, what type of investigation you're doing. There were headlines a couple of years ago, I think, that stretch, stretches back the, to prior to COVID, headlines that the moon has a lot more water on the surface than previously thought. And this these were generated primarily by LRO instruments, right? Many of the recent estimates of water have come from lunar reconnaissance orbiter instruments. Uh, some have also come from some of the international uh, spacecraft that have been flown. So there definitely have been identifications of frost that have come from the uh, the Indian spacecraft, the Chandrayaan-1. Um, they hosted a NASA payload called the Moon Mineralogy Mapper, and they have uh, recently reported on evidence of water ice frost. But yes, uh, LRO's um, ultraviolet instrument, the Lyman Alpha Mapping Mapper instrument, has also detected evidence for water ice frost. And the neutron instrument on uh, LRO, which is a contribution from the Russian Space Agency, has used neutrons coming from the surface to identify hydrogen uh, in the subsurface, which we assume is is tied to water. A, a decade ago, the paradigm was that the moon really was pretty bone dry, pretty much, except mm-hmm. maybe in a permanently shaded uh, region or crater in the in the polar regions. But now, the paradigm has shifted because of what we just what you just mentioned. How much uh, water? In, in the form of ice, does the moon potentially have? Yeah, so that is probably one of the biggest unknowns about the moon right now is how much water it has retained. Because like you mentioned, the, the idea that the moon has always been bone dry is, is no longer the paradigm. Um, the measurements of water in um, very, very tiny crystals when you scale those up, they, they, they imply that the moon outgassed enormous quantities of water while all of that volcanism was going on. How much of that made it to the, to the polar regions and was preserved over three and a half billion years is unknown. Uh, comets and meteorites, meteors can, can uh, both supply uh, volatiles to the surface. It's also unknown how much of that is retained. So until we go there and actually start measuring it, it's difficult to estimate. So I, you know, I mentioned the frosts that have been detected with these optical techniques. Um, they really are frosts, and we don't know how well they communicate with any subsurface reservoirs of water. So we can make estimates of the, their spatial extent and, uh, and, and, and maybe, maybe even hopeful guesses at, at to what depth they extend. But until we're there and we've, we've drilled down and we really understand what's below the top two meters, because that's the area where, where we don't know <laughs> what, what's down there. Uh, it could be a lot of ice. It could be zero ice. And until we're there, we don't know. But I, I will say there has been one experiment that really proved that the moon, we can be optimistic about ice on the moon. And that's the LCROSS experiment. So this was actually a sister spacecraft that launched with LRO. And it impacted a polar crater called Cabeas. And um, what they did was they crashed the upper stage of our launch vehicle into the moon while observing it from a little tiny spacecraft. And then that spacecraft also crashed into the moon. But what they found was that the water content that came up was approximately 7%. And I think the best case estimates were that they would be like 1% or 2%. So they found quite a bit more water than they expected for that region. And that's the only place that we really know what's, in, what's below the surface in terms of water content. 
none of the Apollo missions or none of the surveyor missions uh, or, or robotic missions prior to this L-cross and LRO, these L-cross and LRO measurements detected any, any significant source of water. No, because they didn't go to the, the polar regions where water can be retained. So any water that is, was present at the Apollo sites would have to be water that could preserve in a state that would be baked and frozen and baked and frozen day after day after day. And there, there is some evidence now that there could be very small amounts, monolayers of, you know, a single atom thick layers of, of water that, that survive at those latitudes. But that isn't really within the capabilities to have been measured when Apollo was active there. But, but the, they but, did bring back samples, and samples are the gift that keeps on giving. And right. those are what were used to really estimate that the interior of the moon has a lot more water uh, than we, we thought for a long time. You also have found out that there are a lot more uh, non-polar, permanently shaded regions of the moon than previously thought from your work. And so is it possible if these uh, regions have been permanently shaded and remain, remain as coal traps, so to speak, could they retain any water? Through, through work that, that has been done with, with Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter data, we have found that there are permanently shadowed regions down to approximately 60 degrees latitude. Now, keep in mind, the Apollo missions were still even more equatorial than that. But that does open up a significantly larger area of the lunar surface to have these types of um, features. And what's really interesting is that Permanently shadowed region means you don't get sunlight, but that doesn't mean you don't see another surface that gets sunlight. And so these PSRs that are at 60 degrees typically get a ton of, of light reflected into them. So they're not actually that cold ah. um, as compared to the, the PSRs that are at the pole, which are very, very cold. So a permanently yep. shaded region means it's shadowed, uh, but it doesn't mean it doesn't get any light. You're saying there's reflected light into these regions absolutely yeah in fact there's so much reflected light that we've been able to take pictures inside these regions with the lunar reconnaissance orbiter camera but that's not true at the pole right i mean because there are some psrs at the pole permanently shaded regions which are total have remained totally dark and totally i mean extraordinarily cold because they don't ever get any sun any sunlight or any reflected light Uh, so the psrs at the poles get less light than those lower latitude ones so they are colder um, generally speaking, though, the large areas of the PSRs do get some amount of reflected light. So their temperatures aren't stable and cold. They actually fluctuate quite a bit. So you might have a PSR that is, you know, its temperature goes from 50 degrees Kelvin, 50 degrees above absolute zero, to 110 degrees and then back again. And that's, that temperature range is still cold. That water ice would be stable on the surface for billions of years. But its, its temperature is changing because the amount of reflected light it's getting changes. Whereas at these lower latitudes, those temperatures could go up and up to you know practically room temperature um, because they get so much reflected light. The, the the most interesting thing is actually would be PSRs that are kind of between those extremes. So the polar PSRs are fantastic at keeping volatiles stable that are there, but in terms of actually preserving volatiles. Um, the best way you can do that is to move them into the subsurface because any volatiles that's at, that are at the very top surface are going to be struck by micrometeorites and micrometeorites are going to basically vaporize them. So what you want to do is you want to get your volatiles into the subsurfaces as quickly as possible. And that actually happens at slightly warmer temperatures, temperatures where water ice isn't stable on billions of year timescales. It might be stable on day or week timescales. 
And those exist in some of these PSRs that are kind of in the intermediate range, PSRs that are more in the 70 to 80 uh, degree latitude range, as opposed to the absolute coldest ones. And so the uh, the PSRs, the polar regions, are basically uh, caused, I mean, they originated as craters from bombardments, but because of the uh, the obliquity, the, the tilt axis of the moon, they just don't get a lot of sunlight. That's right, yeah. So the moon's uh, uh, tilt relative to the solar ecliptic is only about one and a half degrees, okay. whereas the Earth's is 23 and a half degrees. So the, the Earth has has more extreme seasons. Our poles can see the sun, uh, you know, for, for, for extended periods of time. That, that doesn't happen on the moon because it is so close to zero. And yeah, that, that is one of the unique things about the moon. How deep is the deepest PSR in a, in a, in a, in a polar region? So the deepest PS, PSRs are, are several kilometers deep. Good. And gosh. W- what's happening on the moon is you have an interesting distribution of these, of these PSRs. So in the North pole, you have a kind of a typical crater distribution. And so you have uh, what you would expect from that, where uh, craters that are close to the pole have PSRs, and further away, uh, you start to have fewer and fewer. Um, At the South Pole, because you're basically on the rim of the South Pole-Aiken Basin impact, this massive 1,500-mile-wide impact basin, it creates additional relief that allows there to be much larger PSRs. So there's there's a larger area, and the PSRs themselves are individually are, are larger at the South Pole. And that's probably better for storing volatiles over long geologic periods. Is there any sort of permanently shaded region on Earth that is vaguely analogous to anything on the Moon? No, <laughs> unfortunately not. Because the Earth's uh, obliquity is, is you know, over 20 degrees, um, you know, the poles do get very extended periods of sunlight. So they, they would not uh, be able to have the same type of PSRs. And, and even though you, you mentioned that uh, the temperatures can, can vary, uh, surprisingly, on, in the PSRs, mm-hmm. even uh, at the poles, you told me in Forbes that the PSRs at the poles are colder than expected, with some colder than minus 415 degrees Fahrenheit. And that, thus, that would make them capable of preserving volatile compounds beyond water ice. I guess the hope is that these PSRs would contain water, hydrogen, maybe ammonia, methane, but also they might also contain geological markers of volatiles that made up the early solar system, or am, am I stretching it? No, you're you're 100% correct there. There's, there's kind of two components there. So the temperatures we measure with Diviner are colder than we expected based on numerical models. And one of the things that we found is that in order to get the numerical models to match the Diviner data better, we basically have to change the properties of the regolith in these really cold areas. And this is, until we go there and can actually measure the regolith properties, we don't quite know what the right answer is, but there could be a couple of different things going on. Um, the, the thermal inertia, the, the ability of the regolith there to retain heat, could be different uh, than it is elsewhere on the moon because it has a different grain size or a different cohesion. But the other thing is that materials tend to behave a little bit strange at these super low temperatures, and that might be something that's not adequately reflected in our models. Um, but you are right. The temperatures were colder than we expected. I wouldn't say because of that, uh, these other things are possible. Um, because the, the freezing temperatures of those organic compounds you mentioned are, are generally 
uh, within the range that that would have been predicted even by the model. And uh, so the expectation was that these materials were being preserved. It just it now gives them larger regions in which to be, be preserved. And I should add, you know, we, we mentioned Elcross briefly. Um, they did detect some of these materials. So that that's very interesting. Um, and in most cases, these materials are, are likely not from the moon themselves, but they are uh, representing um, what the delivery of volatiles and organics into the inner solar system have been through comet and meteoritic processes, which is, it's, it's always great when you can go to the moon and understand something greater about the solar system as well. And so, in other words, they would offer a window onto the early solar system. If you, if you could send a robotic probe to the bottom of one of these things, and we're talking three kilometers, I mean, to get to the most pristine of these early uh, compounds, potentially from the early solar nebula that formed our solar system. You would want to send some sort of robotic probe down into something like the Amundsen uh, crater, uh, which is a permanently shaded region at the, at the uh, South Pole, I believe. Yeah, so Amundsen is, is one of the, the larger PSRs. Uh, and yeah, it, so the one that's closest to the South Pole is Shackleton. Shackleton, and that right. certainly would be a challenge because it, it's a relatively <laughs> small crater and it has steep walls. That you know, if you have Apple Plus, you might have seen it being featured on on you know, for all mankind uh, uh, TV show. Um, that so that 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 would certainly be one one challenge. And and how do, how do you do that is is something that you know it will require new technology developments. But since you mentioned Amundsen, Amundsen is actually a fascinating spot on the moon because it's a crater near the pole. Half of it is a PSR and half of it is not. And it's a flat floored crater. So you actually could land in the illuminated region of that crater and just drive right into the PSR in a completely flat terrain. And there aren't very many places on the moon that you could do that. And Amundsen is actually a far side crater, uh, but at the south, near the south pole, right? It's near the South Pole, and it's it's actually fairly close to the limb. So it's uh, it, it, yeah, it's it's very close to being uh, on the edge of near side far side. So in general, what would you you know if you were had if someone said hey, you know, give us an elevator pitch for a mission to one of these PSRs? What would be the science drivers? Well, so I, I think we we hit on a few of them already, right? So there's uh, you know delivery of volatiles into the inner solar system. There's understanding how the moon devolatilized through volcanism and how much that retained. And that also has implications to other planets too. Um, you know, what did, how did the oceans form on Mars and how did they go away? And it, a, another thing that we haven't talked about, but is of particular interest to Diviner, is that in these very cold regions, you can actually do an interesting experiment to study the interior of the moon by measuring um, how much heat is available. So if you're in a not just a PSR, but a PSR that doesn't see ever anything that's illuminated, so a doubly or triply shadowed PSR, your temperature is basically controlled by the physical properties of the regolith and the heat that's coming from the interior. And so if you can measure that temperature, you can, uh, through uh, geochemical modeling, you can determine what the composition of the interior of the moon is. And this is something we've actually been trying to do with Diviner, and we pushed the instrument very hard to come up with the measurement that is, um, you know, just under 20 degrees Kelvin, and that would imply a, a heat flux from the lunar interior that is very different than, than what was measured at Apollo. And this actually makes sense, because the Apollo missions were in this region that have this high radioactive element 
concentration. And so they have a, a higher heat flux just because of the composition of the surface. Whereas in the polar region, you're far away from that. You get something which is much closer to the, the bulk lunar value. And so you can get a, a better estimate of, of that interior composition. We never actually define radiometer for the for the audience. <laughs> could, could you give us a, a brief definition of the instrument that you work with on the LRO, the radiometer? Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite questions because almost everyone <laughs> that listens to the podcast will have used a radiometer in the very recent past because all of those ear thermometers and forehead thermometers... <laughs> Those are radiometers, oh. and they work in very, very similar way to how our instrument that's orbiting the moon is. It's just a bit more sophisticated, a bit more sensitive, but uh, it's it's basically a remote thermometer. It's something that can tell the temperature or something without touching it. And so it's a material that changes its um, electrical properties depending on what the scene of the thing that it's looking at, whether it's someone's forehead or a PSR on the moon. And you uh, actually are looking at so-called cold traps. I mean, I think that kind of is self-explanatory to an extent, but how would you find a cold trap? Yeah, so the general definition of a cold trap is a region that is that the, the maximum temperature never exceeds the sublimation temperature of water ice. So that's about 110 degrees Kelvin. But yeah, so it, a cold trap is a region that um, is, is cold enough to perpetually... Uh, store water ice. And um, some cold traps uh, obviously are colder than that and can store other things, but that that's just the general definition. So I guess that you know, to the earlier comment on PSRs, you can have a PSR that's not a cold trap if it gets enough reflected sunlight that it's not actually that cold. So I think the average person and a lot of uh, the people in the commercial space industry get the idea that if we can just simply land astronauts and crews and build some sort of space habitat on, at the lunar south pole that we're going to be able to easily access a lot of these materials a lot of these compounds and use it for water for food for you know for living etc 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 but the biggest uh, challenges i see we don't even have a rover that can descend pretty much straight down at a, with a gradient of what uh, 45 degrees or not 60 degrees or 70 degrees maybe even 90 degrees three kilometers down how you how are you going to extract water, even if there is water, in, as ice at the bottom of one of these deep coal traps? That's a three or four kilometer deep coal trap. Yeah, that, it's an interesting question. And this is actually an area that um, at APL we've been you know, contributing um, to NASA through the Lunar Surface Innovation Initiative. So this is NASA's Space Technology Mission Directorate's effort to figure out now what the technologies that we need in order to have a sustainable human presence on the lunar surface are. And so certainly in-situ resource utilization, or ISRU, is one of these aspects. Uh, and we have, there's a focus group that you know, is dedicated to working that problem. Uh, extreme access is another one, how you get into these areas. Extreme environments, that's the one that, that I, I lead, um, talks about what are the physical parameters of those environments. And so there, there are lots of, there's lots of planning that's going into this to look at what the critical technologies um, to achieve those architectures. But at this point, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. And it really depends on where the volatiles are, uh, whether those volatiles are present as uh, deep, pure ice, 
or if it if it's dirty, if it's icy regolith, or if it's regolithy uh, ice, right? Any of those ways is going to greatly affect how you get those resources out and what you're able to do with it, what the quantity of materials you have to move are. Tell us about the lunar flashlight uh, effort, uh, the satellite mission that would be part of Artemis One, and 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 what do you mean? This is the unmanned, uh, uncrewed mission that would be a technology demonstrator that would be in advance of the crewed mission to the NASA's Artemis crewed mission to to the South Pole. Is, is, is that what Artemis One is? Yeah, so Artemis One is the first test of the Space Launch System and the Orion capsule. So basically, it's going to uh, launch and fly Orion around the moon, and then Orion returns back to Earth. And the main reason for the mission is to test the new heat shield technologies, because Orion is much larger than the older Apollo capsules are. And so they need to actually have these kind of interplanetary speeds uh, testing of, of the heat shield. But because we're going to the moon and there's extra mass available, NASA is flying 13 CubeSats. And CubeSats are these um, standard format. They're independent spacecraft that get ejected uh, from uh, either Orion or from the launcher at various points in the mission. And um, in, in the case of this uh, mission, in the case of Artemis 1, all of the CubeSats are in a 6U format. So that's something that's uh, 6, 10 by 10 by 10 cubes. So it's basically the size of like two cereal boxes taped together are these cube sets. And the mission that I'm involved in is called Lunar Flashlight and it's a multiple laser reflectometer. And so what we're doing is we're shining lasers from lunar orbit onto the surface and these lasers are at particular frequencies of light where we expect to see water ice uh, absorptions. And so we can use that to map out water ice frost without relying on reflected sunlight at all. So we'll, we'll be able to look into PSRs and, and map frost in a totally new way. And this is definitely funded. I mean, this is going to happen. Yeah, Artemis 1 is currently scheduled to launch in November. <laughs> we'll, we'll see if it actually launches in November. <laughs> so you, you think it could be... I mean, what I'm saying is your mission is funded. Uh, the small the, the, uh, the small sat mission is funded. The only thing you're uncertain about is actually the launch date for Artemis. It could be pushed back. Yes, uh, most of the CubeSats have already been delivered. Um, Lunar Flashlight is, is in uh, instrument integration right now. So all, everything's already been funded, yes. So before we wrap things up, let's uh, talk about the Farsight again. I came across an interesting story, either a PDF of a paper I was reading in preparation for this uh, this episode, and uh, about the, the Lunar Farsight, the Tsiolkovsky Impact Crater. Uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. Apollo 17 astronaut Jack Schmidt advocated Tsiolkovsky as the landing site of Apollo 17. And the way you would be able to do that is the command module and the service module, once they were in orbit around the, the moon, the same way you're doing, going to be using Artemis uh, 1 uh, to launch these CubeSats. What, you know, back in the in the early 70s would have done what they had in terms of small satellites, communication satellites, to be able to relay signals back to the lunar surface from the far side and then back to Earth, if that makes sense. Schmidt had thought about this, obviously, and it, it, it kind of makes sense, but NASA vetoed the idea as too risky, and of course they landed in the Taurus-Littrow Valley, which is this incredible uh, mountainous region 
And the Taurus Litro is, how would you describe where that actually is? Uh, it's it's fairly north-central. Taurus Litro Valley is um, to the southeast of Mari Serientatis, and so just north of Mari Trinculatatis. So it, it's reasonably central on the lunar near side. So let's rewrite history, Apollo history, and, and let's envision them landing in the Sikovsky crater on the far side instead of the Taurus Litro. Mm-hmm. What would that have meant? Yeah, so that's one of the fascinating things about being a lunar scientist now is Harrison Jack Schmidt is still around and he still attends our conferences and talks about things like these. And if you ask him, he will tell you that they 100% made the right decision by sending Apollo 17 to where they did. Is that right? But I can, I can make a case for Tsiolkovsky because uh, I did write a paper about it a number of years ago. And it is a fascinating site. So it is a fairly rare exposure of lunar volcanism. Um, and that's important. It has a central peak that is made of pure plagioclase, one of the purest areas of, of plagioclase that we have identified on the moon. And it, when it's uh, illuminated by sunlight, it's so bright that the, uh, the Russians who originally identified it, and they named most of the things on the far side, um, thought that it was luminescent, that it was actually light on the surface. It was so bright. Good guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and from the diviner perspective, we got interested in it because it is it is the only crater that is 3 billion years old that has a significant population of rocks still around it. And so this was a mystery for us. And it's, it's still a mystery of why this really old crater uh, is able to preserve rocks, whereas no other crater on the moon that's 3 billion years old has the same level of rockiness around it. So it, it is it is definitely an interesting site. I think that you could make a case for studying lunar volcanism, uh, lunar crustal formation, impact processes, and and uh, and yeah, a whole bunch of different things. So what should we be doing that we aren't to, to further lunar science? There's a lot going on right now for lunar science. Uh, NASA has committed itself to having two lunar science surface missions or more every year moving forward. And those are going to start launching... Um, in 2022. So you're going to start seeing a lot of these commercial companies landing NASA payloads on the surface. So I think I would argue if there's one thing we should be doing that we're not doing is we should be planning for LRO to not be there, to not be returning active images of Chinese rovers moving around the lunar surface or, <laughs> or our astronauts walking around you know, the, the Artemis base camp because it, it is going to end at some time. It, LRO has had a fabulous mission. It's 12 years, it's still going strong, but at some point we do need to plan for its replacement. So I I would say we should be working on the next generation lunar orbiter. So what puzzles you most about the moon? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, there's so many different things that, that are happening on the moon, how you can have vastly different geologic phenomenon expressed on the surface of the moon in very short distances that allow you to understand things not just about the moon, but about the solar system in general, I just find fascinating. So I, I don't know if that's puzzling, but I definitely find that fascinating. Ben, do you have a way that uh, listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Yeah, I mean, so if people want to contact me, um, certainly you can check out my, my staff profile at uh, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab website. Um, I did notice that uh, you have a Facebook page for the podcast, so I will probably join in that. And if anybody wants to ask a question, I'll be happy to answer it for them. 
As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Ben Greenhagen, thanks so much for giving us the latest on lunar science. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>